0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to Academic Dean, where we connect with passionate college leaders who share their stories and viewpoints of higher education, especially lessons learned along the way. Now, here's your host, Dr. Dave Gercheck. Hi, everyone. Today, I'd like to welcome Dr. Ricky Shabazz to our show. Dr. Shabazz is the president of San Diego City College in San Diego, California. Hi, Ricky. I'm excited to have you on our podcast today.
1: Hey, how you doing, Dave? Uh, appreciate the opportunity, and please, you know, I, I definitely love calling, being called Ricky, because anytime someone says Doctor Shabazz, I don't want anyone to fall down and think I can help them. You know,
0: <laughs> good point. Never thought of that. Good point. So, so tell me a little bit about uh, San Diego City College and why students select your institution.
1: You know, I love this college. The people who work at San Diego City College, we 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 love this place. We love our students. It's in the heart of downtown San Diego, but long before the gas lamp and before the the big buildings and high rises were built in downtown, this campus has long had a history of serving formerly incarcerated, former military uh, students who were on welfare, uh, a host of first generation college students that used to live in this area, some of which still live in uh, an area of San Diego called Southeast San Diego. And they come to this college looking for a better, a better way, uh, upward mobility, the middle class, apprenticeships, transfer. And so while we're in a very affluent area of San Diego, it hasn't always been affluent. And so this college took on uh, a mission of social justice, educational equity, academic excellence. And so the stories of the students who come through, and I know every college says the stories of the students, but when you talk about first-generation students, when you talk about students from all over the world, San Diego has a fairly large population of Eastern African, certainly being a border city, we have a high population of students from Latin America, but we have students from all over the world. We like to consider our campus, the United Nations, and I am most happy to report that our faculty and staff diversity nearly mirrors the diversity of our students. And that says a lot about the intentionality of our board, our chancellor, and our campus that we want to make sure that our students not only see themselves in the curriculum, but they, they see themselves in the people who work at the college. And so students select our college because of that. Uh, Many of them come to San Diego City College and may have their first black professor, may have their first openly um, gay professor, may have their first professor who was in the military. And so there's a theme that runs through our students that is carried out into our faculty and staff. And so the students come here because we are intentional about our efforts to change their lives.
0: Well, holy cow! That's uh, nobody's ever explained their college to me that way before. I think that's that's very exciting for you guys. Uh, I I would like to share with you that a lot of parents, for some reason, listen to my podcast to find out what the local college has to offer.
1: Yes. So,
0: so for those for those parents, can you tell us a little bit about your college and and what's available to them? Yeah, so we
1: have nearly 18,000 students, I think when you talk about unduplicated students over the course of a year, about 24,000 or so students will come through the doors of San Diego City College, either virtually hybrid or in person, we are a comprehensive community college so I would say the lion's share of students come to us planning to transfer to San Diego State or UC San Diego or or private colleges similar to Point Loma or the University of San Diego. So we are a transfer institution. So students will come and spend their first two to four years depending on the pace and transfer. Uh, We also run many of the apprenticeship programs for San Diego proper. And so we have things like machining, HVAC, cosmetology, and a host of other career education for folks who want to go straight into the workforce. One of my favorite programs to talk about uh, is the SDG&E lineman program. So we have an electrician program, and then if folks want to become a lineman, uh, they can go through the apprenticeship program through SDG&E and then uh, get a certificate and become a lineman through SDGE, which is a very lucrative program career linemen start off at about $150,000 a year. And with overtime, they make about a quarter of a million dollars. But we also have a nursing program and a wonderful cosmetology program. So we're a comprehensive community college offering both transfer and career education.
0: You know, you're the uh, the college I was dean at. Uh, we had a lineman program too. And that was the hardest thing to get my head wrapped around is the money they make for such a you know, they come out and they start their apprenticeship and they move forward. And it's like, oh, my gosh, I wish I would have known that when I was younger.
1: If uh, this president thing doesn't work out, Dave, <laughs> I, I have my application ready to go into the lineman program. But the reality is that the program is actually a very dangerous program. I mean, you're dealing with high voltage situations, but the training that these students receive, I think they make approximately $80,000 a year while they're going through the apprenticeship program. Their first year out, they pass the state test. They get hired by SDG&E base salaries, about 150000 with over time, easily making a quarter of a million dollars a year. Yeah, yeah.
0: Well, what's new at City College? What are you guys looking at uh, this year? And then, of course, down the road for future activities?
1: Yeah, a, a couple of things that I'll talk about. There's a number of things going on. And certainly, I commend our wonderful faculty, classified professionals for pivoting in COVID and launching innovative approaches with instruction and support services remote, online, virtual. Uh, But the two things I actually wanna talk about is we submitted a housing grant. Many of the community colleges in California don't have housing. I think there are only two or three of the 112 community colleges that have, um, and I said 12, there's 116 community colleges that have dorms. Um, And so we don't have dorms, but many of our students are homeless or facing homelessness. Uh, It's it's very expensive to live in San Diego. So we submitted a Senate Bill 169 grant where the state set aside, I believe, $2.2 billion, of which this year 250,000, 250 million, excuse me, is up for grabs for community colleges who want to build dorms. And So we got together with our campus constituency groups and an architect, we're going through a facilities master plan, we just built out about a half a billion dollars worth of campus so the campus is brand new. The only thing next is to update a couple more buildings and possibly build dorms so we submitted an application, Uh, we think if we can secure Uh, about $130 million, we could build out about 600 beds, targeting foster youth, targeting veterans, uh, targeting formerly incarcerated students who have challenges with housing as they transition back to some sense of normalcy into society. So that's super exciting. We'll find out in the spring whether we received that grant. We just submitted it last weekend. We uh, also are launching an effort to reorganize student services. We have a new vice president who will be interviewing next week. So we have our finalists. There are three finalists for the vice president of students. It'll allow us to reorg student services around the student journey. How do we make it easy for students to transition into the college and transition out of the college? And so we're looking at an enrollment management model that puts things like counseling all together because we have counselors all over the campus wonderful counselors at that Uh, but we're also looking at pairing admission records and financial aid and our promise program we have a promise program that allows entering high school graduates to go to San Diego City College for free for their first two years so we're realigning our student services division following a path of the student journey to just make it easier we're looking to dismantle some of these systems that impedes a student's progress through through our system some of you know some of our processes Dave are just old um and so we've got great minds innovative minds here on campus and so we're looking at streamlining things so it's easier for students to get into the college that is super exciting um and so those are the two things oh the last thing that we're doing that that is is exciting is building out our foundation. San Diego City College was the fifth community college in the state, so we're about 107 years old. We hired four, three people in our foundation. Uh, I'll talk about two of them. One of them is going to be responsible for alumni engagement, so we intended to start doing more with our alumni, bringing them back on campus. I mentioned that we built out the campus about a half a billion dollars, so it's new. And so many of our alumni have not seen the new campus. We're gonna invite them back and engage them over the the coming years. Uh, The second coordinator is going to be working on summer programs for elementary and middle school students. We have some wonderful facilities, but it mean absolutely nothing if people are just driving by them. And so we intend to get uh, some fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth graders on campus doing things with our one acre uh, farm. We have an urban farm on campus. We have a planetarium on campus, dance. And so we're going to be engaging young people trying to build out that pipeline around concurrent enrollment so that these students know by the time they get to high school, they can actually start taking college classes for free at San Diego City College so that they can have their first year, first two years of college complete while they're in high school.
0: What a great idea. You know, I've heard so many people discuss as far as you know, making sure we go into the making sure colleges going to the high school to bring people in. I like the idea of dropping it down to elementary school to get them involved with you guys and seeing the path so they can see their learning path process to say the least. So,
1: yeah, you know, and Dave, I wish, you know, certainly that is the ultimate goal, but I, you know, I have to be truthful for you uh, to you. Yeah, I've got a 12 year old daughter and I was putting her in summer programs and I was seeing what I was paying for these summer programs. And with a nearly a thousand employees I, I just believe that many of our employees during the summer when their children are out of school would rather have their children at work. Uh, and so to get those students <laughs> on campus and give them exposure to STEM and STEAM and the idea. facilities we have just seemed like a no brainer.
0: That's, man, I'm telling you, that's pretty smart. I never thought about that. Yes, yes, having the children closer is a lot better, I, <laughs> um Well, let's talk a little bit about you. What, what was the path that took you from the beginning to where you are today as the president of City College?
1: So my background is in enrollment management, been very fortunate to work under the leadership and mentorship of some great leaders in the, in the, in the state, if not the country. Uh, Leslie Campbell, um, bless her um, heart, she passed away of cancer many years ago was my first supervisor at UC Davis in the admissions office. And it wound up that she was the person who actually admitted me into UC Davis where I did my undergrad studies and and I was very active as a student. And so they hired me in the admissions office straight out of college and sent me back to Southern California where I was the regional admissions rep. And I got to go around to all of the high schools and the community colleges. And it was there that I felt that my skill set with the diversity of students at the community college was a fit. Now, certainly at UC Davis, being one of the top research institutions in the country, a top 10 public school, many of the students who I spoke with, the fact of the matter will will never set foot in UC Davis. But community colleges admit 100% of the students who who walk through the doors. You know, you can wake up today and decide I wanna go to City College and we'll welcome you open-handedly. And so as I was working in the admissions office at UC Davis and I was going around to the community colleges in Southern California, I happened to get a call one day from one of my colleagues who had worked at UC Irvine, who had moved over to Compton College. Compton College lost its accreditation and they were forming a new team to essentially save the college. Because if you know anything about losing your accreditation, normally the doors close. But there was a unique partnership formed between Compton College and El Camino College to keep the doors open and I was brought in initially as the director of outreach which is kind of misleading because I oversaw transfer center and first year experience foster youth and a host of all the off-campus programs at the high schools Uh, And so Keith Curry, who was my boss at Compton, who's the now president at Compton, convinced me to come over to Compton College. And my mentors thought I was crazy to leave the University of California to go to little old Compton College. Well, when I arrived, Compton College on on paper had 3,000 students. We think that there were probably about 1,500 students. Compton was protected to grow during the height of the recession, 2007 through 2010. And we built a team over at Compton College that grew the college from, two, uh, from about 3,000 students to when I left in 2014, we had 15,000 students, had the largest graduating class in the history of the school and had increased the transfer rate um, significantly to CSUs and UCs. And so when you, when you grow a college from 3,000 to 15,000 without an accreditation, you start to get the attention of people. And so uh, I employ both traditional and non-traditional methods like um, faith-based initiatives, community-based initiatives, kind of grassroots approaches to growing community colleges. So I left from Compton and was very fortunate to be the Vice President of Students over at San Bernardino. Now I lived in Rialto, which is a suburb of San Bernardino and I was commuting into Compton uh, about two hours one way and eventually having my daughter, which at least you can see in the background, certainly the people listening can't see. And so I I wanted to be closer to home and San Bernardino Valley College was five minutes away from my house. And so very fortunate to be hired there uh, in 2014 as the vice president of students. It had similar success as I did in Compton although my first year was a very learning environment I had to had to learn I couldn't just duplicate everything that I did in Compton at San Bernardino but once I built out the relationships was able to grow San Bernardino Valley College and have similar success with retention and, and graduation and completion rates there and went through a couple of presidential training programs and had, was assigned a mentor via a program called the Lincoln Institute, which is a training program for aspiring college presidents. And I was assigned a mentor who is the president uh, in Minnesota. And he encouraged me strongly to apply to be the president of San Diego City College. I had no desire to be a college president. I was actually very happy being a vice president, but sh- I am sure glad that he strong-armed me into applying for this job because this is the best college that I have ever worked at. And so I've been in San Diego City College since the summer of 2017. And this is the most diverse student body. This is the most diverse employee group. um, And I call them my family here at City College that I have ever worked with. And I enjoy saving and changing lives with my colleagues that I get to work with every day. And that's the short version of the, of the story.
0: <laughs> well, well, what's been some of the proudest moments so far then for you at uh, City
1: College? You know, there are so many, but I think the one thing that makes me proud is just how we care and love, about, love students. And I use the term love and I'll use the term hope because in a lot of, in a lot of spaces, there is no love and there is no hope. But when you feel freely to use the term love, that means you genuinely um, love what you, what you do. And I, and I do. It's not, it's not work. I enjoy the community. Uh, but the most important thing that I do as a president is hire. That is the most important thing is the people I hire. So I'm happy to report that, that when you look at my executive team, I had the opportunity to hire the first Latina vice president of instruction in the history of the school. Well, why is that important? Well, we're a Hispanic-serving institution. 54% of our students are Latinx. And so I couldn't be any prouder that I hired a highly qualified Latina who is a nurse by training, who is our vice president of instruction. if you look at our public service, uh, public information officer, he's an Asian Pacific Islander, he's Filipino. We have a very large population of Filipinos at San Diego City College. We are also an Asian serving institution. Now these are very, these are federal designation based on our, our enrollment. And so what I am most proud of the people who we hire uh, from all backgrounds that reflect the diversity of our students and then those folks in turn instill the hope and instill the love into the students because they're the ones on the front lines. And then lastly, what I'll say is we have a very large population of Eastern African refugees from places like Somalia, Ethiopia, that that reside in San Diego. When my short tenure here in five years, we've actually hired an Eritrean, uh, two Somalian and an Ethiopian. And so those students, when they come in on campus, have someone who understands their culture. More importantly, they have someone here who speaks their language. And I remember being in the financial aid office uh, before COVID and there was an Eritrean student. I didn't know he was Eritrean, but I, I just inquired. He says he had just arrived from Eritrea, He was having some difficulties with the language and our processes. I was able to walk that young man right upstairs to a counselor who's Eritrean and, and, and without missing a beat, immediately started speaking to that student in his native language. To me, that is, that is, just, that is, that is just powerful. And I can tell other stories like hiring a veteran um, uh, counselor in our DSPS office to help with our veterans because we are in one of the largest military installments in the country. And so there's just stories after story that we hire people who reflect the diversity and the experiences of the students that we serve.
0: You know, Ricky, honestly, I can say you don't just talk the talk, you walk the walk. That's impressive.
1: Well, it, you know, it just shows how important it is for our students to have role models. Um, you know, I remember the first person who I hired was an English teacher, happens to be, to be a woman, happens to be a, a, a white woman. Um, but she will always stand as the most important hire because we always remember our, for the first time we do something. And here's a person who was a a fantastic English teacher um, who had interviewed a number of times at the college and could have walked in there um, unhappy. But the synergy and energy of the people who we work with every single day is attracting that when visitors come, they say, you know what, there is something special about that college and I have to say, Dave, that it was special long before I arrived. And I'm just blessed to be able to, to be at the helm.
0: Yeah. Well, going back to 2017 and before, what's been some of the biggest lessons you've learned as an academic layer?
1: That a lot of things are accomplished over lunch and dinner. My first year as a vice president, I tried to go in and duplicate Compton in San Bernardino, and I did not take the time to learn the culture or the people I I was working with. And so I, I was very fortunate that I went through a training for new vice presidents by an organization called NASPA. And I was reading this book, Executive Transitions and Student Services, and either chapter, sec- the second or third chapter talks about the most common mistakes. And as I was reading, I had made every one of the mistakes. And so I did something that in this day and age, for some reason is hard for leaders to do. I called my team together and I just apologized. Look, I, I owe every one of you an apology. Can we start over? Most of the people forgave me. There were a couple who didn't, but the large majority of them forgave me. And this magical thing happened once I humbled myself and started investing in the people more than the intervention or the task. I started to have the same success at San Bernardino that I did did at Compton. So that really paved the way for San Diego. When I arrived, I spent more time building relationships and listening instead of speaking, Uh, and I work with the most competent experts in working with the population that we do, first generation, low income, immigrants, and I can go down the list. Uh, These people are are the best that I've ever worked with, And, and we have some very lively discussions, but if I was building a team, this would be the best team that I've ever uh, assembled or ever worked with. And and, and it's because of what I learned making some mistakes. And sometimes leaders don't want to admit that they make mistakes, but I make mistakes every single day. But when you're in an environment that is safe, where people are are loving and caring, I just sent out uh, an update on Monday, Dave, and the topic of of the update was let's be kind to one another. So we talk about caring, a caring campus. We talk about kindness uh, and and then we exude those things so that they become attracting to one another and supportive to one another and and our students. So I had to learn that, frankly, the hard way um, that you have that, that we're in the people business. The best part about my job is the people and the most challenging part about my job is the people. Uh, but I'm very fortunate that I work in an environment where the large majority of the people are caring, kind people.
0: Well, you've already given some good advice, but it, what would be the, the take-home message for new college presidents as soon as they start off day one? What advice can you give them?
1: Don't remodel your office.
0: Don't go buy a brand
1: new car. Um, start by hitting the pavement, get out of your office. Uh, Every now and then I'll work the front lines in financial aid, every now and then I'll work work the front lines in admission records because we have to stay in tune, not only with our students, but the people on the front line. And I'll tell this story real quick if I could, Dave. Um, As we were transitioning back to in-person several months ago, I love to hang out in admission records because that's my background. And so I was in admission and records, and everybody's requesting plexiglass. Now, all of the available science says this plexiglass doesn't do anything. Matter of fact, it's actually not a good idea for germs and that sort of thing. And so I was speaking uh, to one of my colleagues in the admissions office. She was helping students. And and I said, look, we're going to get you your plexiglass. But you all do know, like, this doesn't actually help, right? And she, she, what she told me, Dave, like, helped me get it. And I could not have gotten it any better. And I certainly couldn't have gotten it staying in my office. But she turned to me and said, Ricky, it's not about protecting me from COVID. It's about my personal space and me, me feeling safe. I thanked her. I immediately went to my vice president over facilities and said, get these people, get our people get our team get our get our city college family what it is they believe they need because this pandemic is not only a health you know in terms of the biology around the virus but the mental health piece is is even more important and so if i if if i say to be kind and i say i love my job and my colleagues i have an obligation a duty in fact to make sure if they're coming to work that they are safe, like literally, and that they feel safe. Um, and so we did that over the course, but it, but that was a learning, like that was an aha moment, uh, because sometimes we get in these places where we're just thinking about the bottom line and the money, uh, and we're in the people business. And so um, you know, the, a, a new president has to get out of the office. They got to speak to the people on the front lines. They got to listen. And they got to admit when they make a mistake or when they miss something. Like we missed, my administrative team missed Mm -hmm. something. And we missed the human aspect of this pandemic and the fact that we were asking people to come into harm's way, but we really didn't pave a way for them to feel safe and secure.
0: Wow. Interesting Perspective from you, I, I I really enjoyed that that part of our talk. I think uh, I agree. I think most leaders hate to admit that they're wrong. So I want to congratulate you on being selected as one of the twenty five academic leaders going into the twenty one twenty two class of Aspen's Institutes for New Presidents Fellowship. Congratulations, that's pretty exciting.
1: You know, it, it is Dave, and I'm right on that threshold where people would debate whether I'm new or not. Right. And the program is meant to successfully transition and support new presidents in their early years. So I'm 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 like a senior in college or high school, where I'm still I'm still in the new crew, but I'm about to phase out of being new. I'm looking forward to to learning. Right, my area of research and in, in my doctorate is case study. So I like to look at cases across the country to see what I could tweak and learn from and apply at my college. But I also like to use the models of practice at my college to share with with my colleagues. So you never stop learning. You have to be committed to this ongoing professional development and learning. Uh, Community colleges, the face of it is changing. Um, we're in a paradigm shift. And depending on where you are on that bell curve, uh, I want to be on the forefront of innovation, right? On one end, you have innovation on the other end, you have traditionalists. And unfortunately sometimes traditionalists can be slowed to transition into innovation. And sometimes the innovators are too fast for the trend, you know, the, the trend uh, traditionalists. So uh, I have to stay on the forefront of what is going on in education to ensure that my college continues to serve the community that we support. And this is just another vehicle to be able to do that.
0: That is pretty exciting. I'm not that familiar with the selection process. So can you explain how you got appointed and then uh, uh, does the college get something for that or is it strictly... They, they put all their effort into you and then you go back to sister
1: college. Yeah, so it, it's both, right? So they invest in me in terms of networking and training and readings and exercises that I have to do. But we also look at the student success completion data for the college. So just yesterday, as a matter of fact, um, thank you to Dr. Susan Murray, our Dean of Institutional Effectiveness. We sent over specific data on completion rates, retention rates, persistence rates for the college. Uh, We break that up in demographics, drill down in in terms of gender, ethnicity, race, that sort of thing. And we are going to be looking at what we call our diversity, inclusion, our disproportionately impacted groups to to look at models of practice of how we might be able to get students who stop out or do not complete to to complete. So it absolutely is a data uh, analysis portion of this that we look at our colleges uh, to share out strategies but also to see potential gaps that need to be shored up Uh, so it there are three meetings over the course of a year we had our first meeting two weeks ago it was more kind of an information session for us to get to know each other going into january we'll be having three day intense sessions where we'll do data dumps and data analysis of our student success completion rates. And we'll do the same thing, I believe, in June. So I'm looking forward to seeing what kind of interventions come out of these meetings, looking at data. And, and you know, I like to use the term data informed decisions versus data driven um, decisions. Okay. Okay.
0: Well, let's change a little bit. What, what do you think the major challenges for colleges are going to be in the not too near future?
1: Well, my traditional answer would be funding, but the biggest threat, frankly, is the pace in which we do things. And so you have industry, and I'll just use Google or Amazon, for example, which are very large employers, very innovative employers, have an expectation for, for community colleges and universities producing a high-skilled workforce. Well, because we believe in participatory governance and curriculum committees, those things can very often take time that industry doesn't necessarily understand or and or necessarily agree with. And so you see companies such as Google and Amazon essentially creating their own colleges. Uh, You see it with LinkedIn. LinkedIn purchased a company that does certificates. And so uh, the way we, the modality in which education exists, occurs, is delivered, is in fact being called into question. And that can be a very challenging thing for academia, to understand and to keep pace with. Um, Some of my colleagues would get uncomfortable with me using terms like entrepreneurship uh, and innovation. Uh, But the fact of the matter is one of my professors, um, bless his his heart, unfortunately passed away about a year ago. Uh, He was a professor of photography and he wrote a book called The Future of Photography. And I give this book to all of our new hires. Not because I want them to know about photography, but the themes outlined when you look at the camera and the use of camera and how we teach photography. And then this device here. Driving everything that we do, including education, if you talk to my faculty right now, they would say that they are up to their arms with students submitting papers on this yeah,
0: Ricky, Ricky. I'm going to make a comment as the, the listeners need to know. You're holding up your iPhone. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm holding up my <laughs>
1: iPhone 13. That that the semiconductors and the circuit boards and the fact that this is no longer this is a computer doesn't necessarily have Microsoft Word on it to turn in that paper the student is writing. Uh, but to go back to the theme of photography, this cell phone and the camera that in this case the three cameras that are on this phone. Are threatening the existing of the camera as we know it, and in fact, if you talk to a lot of professors in photography, they would say that cameras are actually being used more to take video than they are to be to to, to take you know photos. And then you have this whole digital versus traditional. So that so 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 the future of this is is innovation, and things are changing at a rapid pace. I mean, I just got used to the iPhone 13 and there's a, I mean, 10, and then there's a 13 and then there's a 14. So many of us are uncomfortable, except for probably my 12-year-old daughter. Many of us, the Xers and the boomers, we're we're uncomfortable with the pace in which the technology is changing. And we know that it's not all good, right? The, the Jay-Z, the rapper would say, it's a gift and a curse, right? There, there are good elements of it And there are bad elements. The worst thing I did as a parent in my assessment was to give my daughter an iPad. Now, I thought it was a good idea in the beginning, but now I can't get her off of Minecraft. (laughs) And so these are the same distractions that our students are dealing with and the same challenges that our faculty and classified professionals are dealing with. Because there are expectations built around the technology that is very hard to keep pace with. And so to, to kind of go back to what the biggest challenge is, is really two things, twofold. And I actually think that there's an intersection between technology and industry and the expectations that both of them have that, that are occurring at the speed of light when this ship called you know, with 18,000 students and nearly 1,000 employees does not, in fact, turn in a shared or participatory governance environment, you know, at
0: on a dolly. Yeah, you know, I think uh, anybody who isn't involved with uh, the academic world gets really confused with why is it so slow? And why do we have, you know, we have Senate, we have all this, this process. And they're like, you know, where the business can just go, we're doing it. And it's that's, that's a hard competition to, to go against. That's for sure.
1: And then you add unions and employee groups into the equation. And I just want to say for the record that I'm absolutely pro-union. Um, but, you know, these are constituency groups that we have to consult before we make decisions. And businesses in the true sense, and I use the term industry over business, but the industry has, uh, has clients and they have boards that they have to, um, account for, we have our students and our employee groups, our constituency groups that we have to account for. And that just makes it more exciting, Dave. It just yeah. makes it more exciting.
0: <laughs> well, what about opportunities? What opportunities do you think lay lay in front of us in the not I too mean, distant future?
1: Those challenges are, are the opportunities as far as I'm concerned. Um, we, we are looking at technology solutions for retention, for early alert, for communicating with students and anticipating, I, I like the work that occurred out of the University of Georgia. You know, they've got one system between community colleges, their state, so it's all one system. They were able to use some uh, e solutions to reach out to their most disproportionately impacted students, which happened to be Black and Latino males, to do FAQs and to do early interventions, and they saw some huge returns in terms of students actually matriculating and persisting because of some electronic solutions, Uh, but you have to have the personnel who are comfortable implementing those solutions to ensure that they are used. So I think that the opportunities to partner with industry, and I'll just share one partnership that I am super happy about here in San Diego, we partnered with uh, NAVWAR, which is the largest civilian branch of the military, where they were realizing that they had huge turnover in their engineers and computer scientists, right? So they do a lot with computer science. And they were training engineers that were fresh out of uh, college with bachelor's degrees, but they couldn't keep up with the salaries with some of the biotech firms and other technology qualcoms of the world. They, they just couldn't keep up with the salary. So they, they would train someone a year, two years into being an engineer for NAVBOR. And of course they would leave for a six or seven figure job over at Qualcomm. So they came to us and said, look, we wanna do two things. We wanna pilot hiring community college students in like a, uh, an engineering or computer science apprenticeship program and pay them an above livable wage career, give them work experience in hopes that we'll keep them through the completion of their bachelor's degree. Well, I'm happy to report we're in our second cohort. First cohort had about 20 students in it that passed the background check. We have an amazing math, engineering, science achievement program, one of our most successful pre-college programs, college programs on the campus. We gave them clothing. We gave them interview skills. They went to the interview. And now we have two cohorts of students that are actually working in Navro in a in an engineering apprenticeship program being paid above livable wage careers and will continue to have a job through the completion of their engineering degree or the computer science uh, degree. And that's now expanding to other companies. The second thing they wanted to do in addition to retaining more of their employees is they wanted to diversify their workforce. The community colleges are the place where most Black students start their education. Community colleges are the place that most veterans start their, community, their education, where uh, Latino students start their education, where women start their education. Um, and so they are also, in addition to in, increasing the retention of their workforce, they're diversifying their workforce because we are where diversity lives.
0: Here's an interesting question for you. I want to talk a little bit about the mental health of students. So uh, I assume a a college like City College is all over this, but what are you doing for the students? And also, um, what are you doing for the faculty?
1: Yeah, thanks, Dave. You know, we are so fortunate to have the best Mental health professional on my campus in the country, Leslie Easton. She's our director of mental health services. She has built out an internship program with the area, four year universities. So, uh, San Diego State, U- USD, for students who are working on their master's degree uh, in the subject, intern over at the campus. We immediately, without question, when the HERF funds came in to the tune of about $15 million at my college over MSI funds, HERF 1, HERF 2, HERF 3, we invested hundreds of thousands of dollars in the mental health off the top. Uh, 200,000 here, 150,000 there. I actually just read a report before this interview that the state is giving us an additional $400,000 to invest in the mental health. So what are we doing? We're doing a number of things. Uh, The first thing that we're doing that's new because Leslie was already doing an amazing job. Uh, We are um, demystifying mental health. So I lead as the president by talking about the employee assistance program and almost every communication in writing or in a video, I talk about mental health. I ask our team, look, I know you're exhausted. I know your mental health is challenged. I see my therapist because we all need someone to talk to. And now as a Black man, it's important that my community sees me talking about mental health. And when I say my community, I'm talking about the college and I'm also talking about my subset community as well so that we are normalizing mental health as not a stigma. That is something that we all do because we all need something to talk about. That then carries out across the campus. Leslie has piloted embedding mental health services in some of our most challenging courses, which tend to be be math and statistics. So now there are mental health providers in those classes. So it makes it easier for those students to seek out the help. We also are hosting weekly smaller group sessions for both employees and students. And so you will see mental health normalized across our across our campus. And frankly, it was done that way prior to me becoming the president because Leslie has been here for some time. The other thing we do is we say the health center. We do not distinguish between mental health and physical health. Like your mental health is your physical health. Uh, and so that is so important. And I even have to continue to remind myself, but we're intentional with saying your mental health is your physical health and we need to normalize the use of a therapist to help us with things that we cannot solve ourselves. We also need to normalize seeking out someone who has the training versus seeing someone who has the same problems that we do, right? So, so I, you know, I, I'll talk to my colleagues, I'll talk to my close circle, and they're struggling with the same things I am. So I have to seek out a therapist. And it just so happens, Dave, that my therapist, his name is Ricky. <laughs> and so it was amazing the similarities when I, you know, used my EAP program when I first arrived in city. And so we we talk openly about mental health. Of course, we have a care team and all of the other things that most colleges are doing. But the thing that we're doing different is we are demystifying it, we're normalizing it, we're intentional about what we're doing. And we are so very fortunate that both the state and the federal government has given us additional resources to put into mental health. It's not enough, but it's better than what most are doing. Wow.
0: Well, here's my last question. Do you have any favorite books on leadership that you would recommend to other academic leaders?
1: Yes. And I keep a number of books on on hand um, that I give to all our new hires, or as I meet with people who are looking for advice about career pathways. I mentioned the Executive Transitions and Student Services that's out of NASPA. I give that to any new manager or any aspiring uh, manager. And even though the book focuses on student services, the themes discussed will help any manager. And so I provide that to all of our new hires. The simplest book that I I have the most fun talking about and giving out is a book that my father-in-law purchased for me during the same time that I was having those challenges in San Bernardino. It's called The Greatest Salesman in the World. It's a $2 or $3 book at best from Amazon. I buy the books by the hundreds because I give this book out to students. And it has a technique if you're not familiar with the book that you're supposed to do. I, don't, I didn't read it that way. I didn't have time. I read the whole book. But uh, when I'm giving the book to students and employees, but mainly students, not necessarily employees, I, um, I put a $100 bill on page 100. And uh, there's a a number of sayings on page 100, but this is the one that I'll share. It says, if I have to be a slave to my habits, I want to be a slave to the good habits. And so I want to replace the bad habits with good habits. But the gist of this book, The Greatest Slave, uh, excuse me, The Greatest Salesman um, in the World, is. There is a guru who is a salesman and he's retiring and he wants to pass, it's a succession plan. He wants to pass on all of his skills to one of his employees, but he's taking his employee through all of these crazy things. And he's trying to get the person to realize that what we do is, is for humanity, It's to help others. And the reason why this great salesman has all of these riches and wealth is not because he desired to have those things, but that he, the greatest thing that he had was the ability to help other people. Uh, and so that's a book that I love to give out.
0: Well, that's a nice way to end our show today. I want to say thanks so much for being on our show. I really enjoyed our
1: conversation. Well, Dave, thank you for the opportunity. Glad we were able to make it happen after a couple of emails. If there's anything that I could do for you or any of the listeners, I'm sure you'll let them know how they can get a hold of me. It's been a pleasure.
0: Well, that wraps up today's show. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Thanks for listening to today's episode. And make sure to visit our website at academicdean.com for additional information. Also, if you enjoy our podcast, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Until next time.